current episode of Playback Theatre Talks, I am very honored to have Joe Salas, the co-founder of Playback Theatre. After more than 40 years, Joe is still fascinated by her work and teaching playback widely. Joe was the executive and artistic director of Hudson River Playback Theatre, which he founded in 1990. Joe is a gifted writer. She has written extensively about playback theatre. Join me, we'll talk about Joe's new book, Personal Stories in Public Spaces, which he wrote with Jonathan Fox. We will focus on trauma stories in playback theatre. We will also talk about gender in playback theatre. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Joe. Hi, Noah. It's a real pleasure to have you here. I'm, I'm really excited to get to know you and to talk about your book, Personal Stories in Public Spaces. Yeah, thank you. The book is so interesting. I mean, you and Jonathan, you both write so well. I mean, so you're, you're not just... Uh, talented in playback theater, but also in writing. So I highly recommend this book to anyone that uh, listened to us. But we're going to get to the book in, in a second. We're going to talk today about the book and we're going to focus on trauma stories. There's a lot to say about that. It was quite difficult, actually, to choose what to, to talk about because you have You've written so much and there's a lot to discuss, but uh, we're going to start with trauma stories and uh, we'll take it from there. Sure. I'm usually, actually, when I'm opening the interview, I'm always asking my guests how did they came to to know about playback or to start doing playback. But I guess in, in your case, it's uh, not so relevant because we all know about uh, about your story or at least we know more or less, and if someone doesn't know, you're mentioning the beginning of the process. You, it's also mentioned in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm gonna start by asking you about the book and also about more personal things that you've mentioned there. Um, I'm gonna start with asking about about the title. Actually, why okay. why why did you pick this title, "Personal yeah. Stories in Public Spaces"? Yeah. Well. Um, it actually started off as the title for one of the chapters. I wrote one of the one of the chapters that was written that I wrote just for this volume is about is comparing playback with other kinds of performance um, storytelling performance forms. And I had used that title for that chapter, but then at a certain point we realized actually that's a good title for the whole book because um, it is um, that is kind of what one of the essential things about playback is that it is um, it consists of very uh, sincerely told, very personal stories told in a in a public or semi-public setting. Um, so the other forms that I discussed do the same thing, but. Um, in, in different ways, they, they're not theatre forms, they're storytelling forms. I, 
Um, and I also talk about kind of the, the, the downside of doing that, the downside of or the risks of telling personal stories in public spaces and the risk of um, commodification mm-hmm. uh, has sometimes crept into, threatens to creep into, into playback, usually usually not, thank goodness. Um, but anyway, that, that that's where the title started off and it seemed like an appropriate way to reflect on everything that we were everything that we were writing about and what made you publish this book at this point in time yeah <laughs> well yes that's a good question it's something that we've had in mind for a number of years um just collecting i mean we've written quite a lot and as you say we are both uh writers as well as theater people um we've been writing longer than we've been doing playback and we've been doing playback For a long time so that's definitely a, a role that's comfortable for both of us and so we've written a lot over the years um, published quite a lot and some of it is very accessible some of it isn't um, mm-hmm. and we've had this idea of just bringing together our some of our writings um, and we We were particularly interested in in selecting pieces of writing that seem relevant now, even if even if they were written a while ago, um or have some kind of historical significance, like perhaps writing about a a turning point in playback um, and or um, seem useful but are not easily accessible. In their in their current location so most of what's in the book um, are pieces that have been published previously but there are several new pieces in the in the book um, and uh, yeah so the, the this is as I said this has been a concept that we've had for a while And we've just been too busy to do it and with the it was it was a pandemic project basically mm-hmm. I mean for me I mean Jonathan got very involved with the listening hour which I'm sure you know about yeah um, and I I took on putting this book together so it it did turn out to be of course a lot more work than I expected mm-hmm. um, and we you know we worked on it together we we had to do a lot of choosing you know what are we going to include what are we not going to include what are we going to write for now um, for, for this volume um, and yeah it took um, I started working on it about this time last year so it, like looking at the book I see and I know in any case that you you always you, you were writing from very early on. Mm-hmm. and i'm I'm curious to hear what motivated you to write about playback yeah um, well it it seemed i mean as i said i mean i've I've been writing one thing or another most of my life, and so it's a very familiar and easy um in a sense easy. Um, vehicle that's available to me and once we started doing playback it just seems so remarkable what we were experiencing what we were witnessing 
just this phenomenon that still still amazes and moves me that you can be in front of a group of people that you don't know, strangers, and you invite a story and suddenly there's a person who has a face and a name and a story and then one story leads to another, another, and it just seemed remarkable from from the beginning to, to witness that process, and I I had I had an impulse to use this tool of writing, which is always at my hand, um, to both I think both to chronicle what was happening in the sense of to record it, to to document it, and also to share it. I mean, from the beginning, it seemed like what was going on was was extraordinary and we wanted I wanted it to be known beyond the few people who might have been in the room where these stories were were being told so one of the very earliest things that I wrote was um about a performance that we did where um this was very early in the first year or two um we were we were um we thought we had been invited to perform at a particular venue and we got there and we found that there'd been misunderstanding and that they um they weren't expecting us there was something else going on there um so here we were we were a whole team of people ready to perform and we didn't have a place to perform and we ended up just driving up to a a children's home where where or it was like an orphanage um, oh, I, I know. I, I think I read about this somewhere. No, but no? you do. You know, you know, because Jonathan quoted it. In yes, exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah, he, he sort of re- retold that story. Um, so it was just one of those times. It just seemed amazing. We we yeah. couldn't do the performance we planned. We ended up doing that. The orphanage said, well, we don't know who you are, but sure, you know, you're our kids, and and it was it was it was wonderful. Um, yeah, that was before internet and before like you couldn't right. just uh, pick up the phone and call and look in, in Google where can we maybe yeah, yeah. right right. <laughs> but if that had happened now, maybe we would have just done a Facebook post or something. But I just remember writing this out, you know, writing it by hand. What what this I called it Millbrook Morning because it took place in a little town, very small town near here called Millbrook. Um, so that was just that impulse to something amazing happened. I want to note this. I want to document it, and I want to share it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that that remains my motivation. Yeah, yeah, I can understand the need to document. Um, the book is divided to three parts. Can you maybe explain why you why it was divided this way? Um, well, there was there were some big questions about how to organize all this material. You know, do we do it just chronologically, starting with the oldest or starting with the newest? Um, and then that seemed it seemed that it would be helpful. We thought it would be helpful to the reader to have some grouping beyond just um chronological and we we tried out different ways of organizing it and and then ended up with this idea that the the first part is um kind of um 
like milestones in, in playback's um, development. We called it part one, growing playback theatre. Mm-hmm. And it, it's just marking the different um, periods in, in playback's history. Um, it's not a comprehensive history. That's not the purpose of the book. But that first part, it just marks certain kind of moments that we we felt were um, uh, significant in, in playback's growth. And then the second part is we called it exploring ideas. So it's more um, theoretical, looking at the ideas and principles behind playback and how we have arrived at those and how those have grown, how other people have contributed to those theories developing. Um, and then the last part is part three is called Stories from the Field. And these are essays and articles written about work that we have either done or witnessed in other parts of the world, um, including Burundi. Um, there's a long section on uh, uh, describes a project in Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, I, I read I read today the chapter about uh, the Bedouin um, in, in Palestine. Yes, yes. So I I visited um, Israel and Palestine twice and spent some time in the West Bank um, traveling with the Freedom Bus people and uh, who are doing they're a group that's um, based out of the Freedom Theatre in Janine, and they've been doing playback around the West Bank for several years now, um, sometimes with people from other countries joining them, sometimes just the, the Palestinian troop. And so this chapter is a very short chapter. And again, mm-hmm. it was witnessing witnessing something that seemed extraordinary and memorable to me and no one would ever know about it if I didn't mm-hmm. write it, you know. Yeah. And I, in, the, in that situation, I was simply witnessing. I was I was in the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, just my my story about witnessing this outside nighttime performance um, mm-hmm. with with people who are who who are very close to being voiceless. I mean, they're they're um, they're a small minority, even even amongst the yeah. And um, they they were like like many groups of people. I mean, they certainly in my experience, they were they were sort of bemused that we were there. Like, who are you? What are you doing here? <laughs> yeah. About, you know? But then as soon as you say we're here to listen to your stories because we know that your stories are important. That's it. They start the hands start coming up. And people have it's so universal, you know. People mm-hmm. anywhere, any people have stories, and they want to tell those stories, and they want to listen to other people's stories. And they were sharing some very traumatic stories there, actually. Right. It's uh, relating to our episode here. Yes, that's right. They they were, and you know when. I don't know if you want to get get to that yet, but in in the, mm-hmm. in, the in the sort of trauma theory field, um, they were they were telling stories that they were they had a traumatic element. They were they were 
extremely difficult things that had happened to them, but they were not in that immediate um, emotional stage of trauma. It was the stage of trauma where they were claiming their righteousness in a sense that they they were saying this happened to us this happened to me and they were saying this in the semi-public setting I mean it was just other people from the village plus the the um the visitors of whom I I was one um and they were saying this happened to us and and we are giving testimony about what happened and it's sort of a way of claiming um, claiming their rightful story and and claiming their resilience and their their connection to to society. So this happened to us. We were downtrodden. We were oppressed, and we're still here. And we are together. And we're going to survive. That was kind of the message of of, of their stories. Yes, I, I actually. I want to refer the listeners because I had also an episode with Ben Rivers that uh, is also talking exactly about that. So if they want to hear uh, more about the activity of the, um, to hear about the Freedom Pass and the, the activity of playback in the occupied territories, uh, then you can listen to Ben Rivers' episode about uh, social change. And also you mentioned uh, Jonathan and the listening hour. So when I had uh, Jonathan here not too long ago, he was uh, also talking about that. So just mentioning that for those who are curious and want to hear more about those topics. So thank you. I I haven't. I I will. uh, I would like to listen to Ben's um, interview as well. He of course, you know, started the the whole project and um, he called it the Freedom Bus kind of honoring or or naming it in, um after the the very famous freedom buses in the American South in the in the 60s where um the the fight for civil rights in in the US great so for those that are maybe relatively new to playback what what do you think what is a good chapter to start from in your book if if yeah. you are new to playback and you want to get an understanding right Well, a number of the chapters do include a short description of playback because they were written for some other anthology or or journal or something where not everyone reading it would would know what playback was. But I would suggest if if you're if you're a newcomer to playback, then the chapter two, which is the um, the article that I wrote. It's actually the earliest one in the in the yes. whole book, mm-hmm. um, and amazingly, it's still a pretty it's still a pretty good description of basic playback, and it's yeah. um it's sort of a it, it says more than the other brief descriptions in the other chapters. So that, I think that would be a good one to start off with, and then and then go to chapter one to sort of read the how it how it's developed. I mean, chapter one doesn't say so much about what playback actually is, but it does talk about how it's um, developed and evolved and, you know, different perspectives on, on playback. Yeah, I, I have to say regarding chapter one um, and, and in general, the whole book. So what surprised me and made this reading so interesting was um, your personal 
writing and honesty. I mean, you and Jonathan both share a lot about your personal journey with playback. Mm-hmm. And and you are you are sharing very honestly in the first chapter that you had many incidents where you you were ignored or didn't get the recognition you deserved. So that was something that um, that surprised me to you were writing about it. Um, yeah. For example, you were mentioning that you were arriving with Jonathan to a workshop, but only his name was at the door. I, I wanted to ask you, how did you deal with that? Um, well, first of all, I want to say that um, we both, but I particularly had a, had a big pair about writing about this. Um, mm-hmm. okay. uh, you exactly. know, I'm, I'm generally a, quite private person um I don't I don't say much about my personal life in in public um but I think it was so important to read about it because um I mean so many of us are uh, running into things like that I mean not exactly that but uh, um many women that that's exactly why so the other side of the pair was I felt that I I wanted to I wanted to share this for 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 the women you know it it was um I I know I'm not the, I mean each person's experience is different and um no one else is in exactly the same role that I am but everyone many many people many many women I know of in playback as well as beyond playback Um, have dealt with the same thing. Obviously, it's a very, very old story that um, I think part of it is, you know, people really want, um, they want one person to be identified as the one, you know, the the leader, and it's usually a man. And um, the the complexity of the, the reality that in this case, it was both me and Jonathan and in fact it was the the other people in the original company were absolutely crucial to the development of playback as well and that that kind of complexity is you know people often don't quite take that in or don't really want to take that in and so I think it has shown up in over the years many 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 times of um, us being somewhere together often being invited to co-lead something and then um the and then being treated myself being treated as though I'm I'm invisible and um so yeah it it happens much less than it used to but it happened you know recently um and it's mm-hmm. it's it's a very um yeah so Jonathan and I being invited to co-lead something um and we very carefully prepare for it together and we, you know we and we get to the door and there's a big sign that says workshop with Jonathan Fox and you know it's like mm-hmm. ouch you know mm-hmm. um, yeah. so and the tricky thing is that there's it's very hard to it is you ask how, how how do I deal with it it's very hard to deal with because you know you can be very quiet and graceful and just not say anything but then you're being complicit in your own oppression 
Um, or you can say something and, and it's liable to sound, it, it's just very hard to find a graceful and effective way to, to, to deal with it. It's not, not an easy thing, but um, I, I did, we did choose to write about it in part because um, this issue, issue around gender inequity um, came up very strongly at the last international conference yeah. And, um, were you there, Noah? Unfortunately not. I had to cancel in the last minute because of uh, family issues. Oh. But uh, I actually talked with Karina about this, the, about the, uh, with Karina Gisler, and she oh. mentioned the, um, the conference. The point is that, that I want to make is that the whole theme came up in, in a number of quite a number of different ways at the conference and and then there was some continuing dialogues afterwards and I just felt I need to contribute my part of the story to this conversation so I did it in that spirit you know yeah um, I'm glad you did actually I think it was important even if it wasn't so easy, I, I, I can imagine it wasn't easy to share that being a private person, which, yeah. yeah. I, I, I think these conversations need to continue. And, um, you know, I think uh, inch by inch we're moving toward, toward a, a more equitable world in terms of gender and race and everything else. It's very slow. Um, but the more we the more we have these conversations, the more chance there is that um, in the future women won't be subject to this kind of um, attitude. Yeah, there is a lot to say about that. There is actually a chapter in the in the book that I haven't got to read, with the title is "Playback Female" or something like that. And I hope I'm not. Uh... Is playback is playback female? Yeah. Um, that was something that, um, so when Ria Dennis was the editor of the um, Interplay, which was what the IPTN journal was mm -hmm. called, um, she wanted, she did a whole issue on w women and playback, and she invited me to write the, the, the you know, lead article. So I wrote this um, piece called is, is playback female? Because I think there are some really interesting parallels between playback itself and at least traditional female characteristics. I mean, I'm not, as I say in the article, I'm not at all claiming that all women embody these characteristics or that, in fact, it is biologically determined. I would not ever say that. Mm -hmm. but, but just there are... I think it's fascinating that there are some aspects of playback itself that that embody the kinds of qualities that traditionally have been ascribed to women. Yes, and of course it's also very popular among women. Yeah, I mean, I think more, I would guess that there are overall more, more women involved in playback than men and quite a number of groups that have um you know many more women than men there there are plenty of exceptions to that as well but uh in in that essay is is playback female i was i did talk about you know women 
being drawn to playback perhaps more than men. But I also was just talking about these qualities like mm-hmm. receptiveness. You know, we have to be receptive. We have to be open and take things in as playback performers. Um, being flexible, you know, we have to be infinitely flexible and adaptable. We have to be um we can't be egotistical. I mean, there are a number of things that that are, you know, mm-hmm. generous, warm, da 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 da. I mean, empathetic, right? I mean, these are qualities that many men have, absolutely, you know, um, but they are traditionally associated with 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 women. Yes, but I think there's a lot to explore there. I hope to get to talk about it in the future more thoroughly. But um, I think now it's a good time to to talk about the um, our our main topic, which okay. is trauma trauma stories. And you also have an episode in the book that is basically uh, dealing with that, and the the name of it is enacting testimony. Trauma Stories in Playback Theatre, which you wrote quite recently, as you mentioned, because you were asked to to write about this topic for... Um... Yes, it was, a, it was. I wrote it for a, a book that was published in England um, called uh, Trauma in the Creative and Embodied Therapies When Words Are Not Enough. And it's edited by Anna Chesna and Sissy Laiku. was published last year. Um, and I, and I want to say like I'm I don't feel like I'm an expert on on trauma. I do have therapeutic training, but I'm not I don't work as a therapist these days. Um, um, but I haven't, as almost any playback practitioner would would have. Also, I've certainly encountered trauma stories many times, and I have I've done some you know done some research about it and. Um, Yes, and as you said, I guess any playbacker encounters uh, trauma stories in one point or another. And yeah. you've been doing playback for 45 years. For 45 years. Yeah, I'm sure you've heard a lot of trauma stories. I, I wanted to ask you to start by asking um, in which ways uh, traumatic stories are different than other stories. So I think what I I think I want to first of all just say what what how the definition of trauma that that I'm referring to um, mm-hmm. because I think I think the word trauma is is perhaps overused um, these mm-hmm. days people it's great that there's been so much awareness about trauma that there wasn't before both in playback and outside of playback um, it's it's very very important that trauma is recognized as a particular kind of experience but I think it can be used too loosely um, mm. so like not every emotional story is a trauma story not every story where someone cries is is trauma it's um and I think it's important for us to be clear about that mm-hmm. um, people can be very emotional they can weep as they tell or watch a story but it's not it's not traumatic it's simply emotional but the 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 definition that i quoted in this um 
well, the, this is the way I defined it, and then I and then I quoted um, Van der Kolk, who's a very important uh, writer about trauma. But the so I said trauma is the experience of dreadful terror and helplessness in the face of a threat that is beyond the capacity of the individual to cope with, and from which she or he is unable to escape. And then Van der Kolk says the essence of trauma is that it is overwhelming unbelievable and unbearable. So it's something awful that happens that you cannot cope with. I mm -hmm. mean, many times awful things happen to us and we can cope with them and they don't traumatize us. And the same experience could traumatize one person and exactly. not. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, I think, important for us to recognize these, these nuances. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I, have, I have to say it's so important that you mentioned that because uh, we do have um, a stereotype about uh, about trauma and we do. There is a discussion these days about um, about the fact that um, we tend nowadays to use um, the word trauma very easily. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's important to to mention that. Um, yeah. before talking about trauma, just to... to... Yeah, um, so just to, you know, because it will help to frame what else we, we say about trauma in this conversation. Mm -hmm. um, so I wrote about, um, I wrote a lot in this chapter about collective trauma, and that's that's the kind of trauma that we're probably more likely to come across in, in playback, although um, a very, very individual personal trauma can come up at any time in any setting. Mm -hmm. but, um, so I, I wrote about, um, and let me just backtrack a little bit just to say that mm -hmm. the, 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 the experts on trauma, like Van der Kolk and, and Judith Herman, who wrote a very um, important book on trauma called Trauma and trauma and recovery. She, she yes, wrote. exactly. Recovery. Was, uh, um, so they they talk about these different stages of of trauma, and in the in the when something traumatic has just happened, um, usually you know people are just flooded with their with their feelings and and their helplessness and their distress and so on. And the the first requirement for them to heal is to be find themselves in safety find themselves away from you know to have moved beyond the the event that was that was traumatic and of course for many people trauma is ongoing it might it might be throughout childhood or it might be um living with political oppression that isn't mm -hmm. it's going on but um to find relative um safety and then to speak about it in a completely un, um, unrestricted way, those things kind of need to happen first. And But then people get to a point where, um, and I'm sure there are, everyone has their slightly different path towards healing, but people do generally get to a point where what they need to do is, is public or semi-public testimony so um, Judith Herman writes about sexual abuse survivors 
who then they're certainly not going to tell their story to the general public, but in a in a therapy group, let's say a small safe group, to say, this is what happened to me, and it was terrible, and to have other people who are present affirm them and validate them and comfort them and say, yes, what happened to you was wrong, and I'm sorry that that happened. You know, it's like helping rebuild their connection to society. And um, I think it's in that in that third stage of giving testimony that's part, part of the process of healing from trauma is where playback generally can be most useful. Um, and I think it can be very useful. I mean, it's I think it's a potentially extremely powerful way of helping groups of people uh, metabolize trauma. Um, I mean, in most situations, individuals are certainly not, you know, you have thousands of people who are displaced because of a tsunami. They're not all going to be able to find an individual therapist that might not be in their culture. But to be, to find a playback stage where they can give this kind of testimony, testimony that is um, completely accepted and affirmed by the other people who are there, that's can be profoundly healing and yeah. essential in that in that trauma path. So I I I talked about collective trauma both um, following um, natural disasters um, like the uh, tsunami and um, meltdown in in Fukushima in Japan, mm -hmm. the tsunami in um, southern India, um, Hurricane Katrina. I mean, there sadly are many of these. Um, and if there is an opportunity at the right time for people to tell their stories again in this semi-public way, um, it can really help people sense that they're that they're not alone and that they their suffering is recognized and it can help them uh, move along also situations of political um, oppression um, which might be ongoing and in those situations it can be um, it can be a way of people a little bit, as I was saying before, with the, the, the short piece that I wrote about um, the Bedouin village in, in the West Bank, of, of saying um, it's like they're, they're telling trauma stories not as, you know, evidence of um, psychic suffering, but as, as, as kind of claiming their um claiming justice you know saying this is this is what happened and i want you to know it and you know we can we can support each other we can be resilient we can build solidarity so in this, in that sense and i think ben said this somewhere um you you don't have to pathologize trauma i mean it happened people suffer and they can come together and be stronger and, you know, build, build connections that, that can be maintained and they can overcome. So it's, it's still sharing trauma stories, but it's focusing on the, 
on the collective empowerment aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Yes. In in the chapter, you are dividing it, the, the chapter, in the chapter, you're mentioning different types of, of trauma. And you were mentioning now, for example, that trauma that is uh, due to political oppression can actually has different, uh, it, it, it might be different from trauma that is caused by um, yeah, sexual abuse or something like that. Can you, can you maybe say a bit more about that, yeah. about the different uh, yes, I will. characteristic yeah. of uh, trauma stories? Sure. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I also wrote about um, trauma in, in therapeutic settings and, of course, playback Um, can and is used in therapeutic settings and in in that in that situation it, it does become a therapeutic modality and you use it hopefully you use it because you are trained as a therapist and you have specific therapeutic goals and so on um, so that the frame around it is is different and if it's if it takes place in groups they're liable to be um, very small very contained, Um, groups so um, I'm going to tell you a couple of examples um, so yeah. um, I my main experience well one of my experiences of using playback in a therapeutic setting was working with children who had very serious um, emotional disturbances um, in a in a residential treatment center And they did playback they we, we did playback theater for them in in a performance setting where there would be groups of 15 or so of the kids and a performing team of adults who all were people who worked at this institution and people if kids in in that situation would rarely they're all traumatized kids I mean they mm-hmm. all suffered incredible trauma Um, neglect and abuse um, sexual and physical abuse and had been abandoned by parents terrible things had happened to them they did not tell stories about that in these shows um, but when we did we would do their groups as well and sometimes those those trauma stories would be more likely to come up but even so their most foreign Um, sort of shocking stories they they wouldn't tell they couldn't tell anybody they couldn't even tell a, a therapist one on one they would often tell something a little bit oblique in the sense that like they wouldn't tell it directly um, they would tell something you know I remember a, a boy telling a story about his mother without ever saying that his mother had died he mm-hmm. was he was grieving for her Um, but he didn't want to talk about her death. He wanted to talk about her and his relationship w- with her. Um, yeah, so- I, I think I think there but there is a story that you're mentioning that um, there was someone telling a story about his uncle being murdered or something like that, but the other kids weren't responding so well. Or maybe I'm uh, I hope I'm right. So that was a time when, um, a, a, as I said, for the for the most part, the children, even though they were, you know, pretty troubled children, they would make 
good choices about what was safe to tell in what setting. But there was this time that I wrote about in, in the chapter in a, we sometimes did performances. I, I trained a little staff group to do playback. And so we would perform for the children. And sometimes we did performances in the classrooms. They had a little school on, on site. And in the this moment that I was remembering and writing about, um, one of the children came to the teller's chair and I was not conducting, I can't remember who was, but this child started to tell a story about his uncle, young uncle, maybe, you know, a young adult who had just mm -hmm. been murdered. And it was very fresh. It wasn't, this kid had not, you know, gone through this, the first stages of. It wasn't, yeah, processed yet. It was, it was wrong. Mm -hmm. and, and there were several of the other children in the room who had lost relatives to violence to murder and they couldn't handle it. it they were just severely triggered by that one I remember one kid ran out of the room another kid ran out of the room it was mm -hmm. it was complete chaos and we we immediately stopped of course trying to do playback we pulled everyone into a circle I have a song that I use when kids are very upset I mean I'm, I'm trained as a music therapist and mm -hmm. we met we managed to kind of um, bring everybody back into safety. But it was a good example of a child or of a teller telling a story that was, um, it was too much for, it might not have been too much for the child, the teller. He might have been okay with it, but it certainly was too much for the other people in the room. And that's actually... Mm -hmm. That's actually something that we one of the one of the tools that we need as playback performers and practitioners is um, is is to know what to do, you know, if things do get out of control. I mean, to have have methods in our and and to be aware all the time of what the audience is experiencing, because when you have somebody who's clearly traumatized telling a story and let's say it is the right time for them to tell the story. They've, they've made that choice. They've recognized that this is an opportunity. There still may be people in the audience who are triggered by that. And as a conductor, particularly, we have to keep our antenna up all the time to know if somebody in the, in the group or in the audience is, um, is being um, is, is suddenly pitched into their own trauma, and and you have to have ways of of coping with that. So I, I also the the other thing I, I think the other category that I talked about in the in the chapter was um, just a, a personal trauma that can come up any any time in a in a public show or in a commissioned performance. Um, where you might not expect it. And um, I I can't remember whether I referred to this or not, but um, one example was um, in the in the performance that we videotaped for the um, playback training video that we made a number of years ago. It was, the performance was with 
a group of staff who worked at a very large institution for people with developmental disabilities. Mm-hmm. And there were, there were, I don't know, maybe 80 people in the room. Um, and uh, they were all, you know, men and women who, who worked together and worked with this population and so on. And the, the theme that the organizers had chosen was um, the balance, something about the balancing act, like how hard it is to juggle our work and our personal lives and so on. Um, but what, what the theme that was coming up spontaneously with the audience was gratitude for, um, for their colleagues and for doing this work. It was a very, very positive kind of theme. And then the last story, the woman offered a story. She didn't want to come to the teller's chair. She wanted to tell it from the audience, but I persuaded her to come to the teller's chair. And she started telling her story, and she was immediately overwhelmed with emotion. And it became clear. Then she said she was talking about being very, very ill. And this was this was a trauma story. We could, you know, recognize it because she was she was overwhelmed with emotion. She couldn't speak. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and it turned out her. So we were not expecting that. You know, this was not a show where we would have expected a trauma story to come forth. Um, but it did. And it, the the trauma was was being a fairly young woman and and having a stroke. You know, she was suddenly in a life-threatening illness. Um, and and the point of what she wanted to tell was about how wonderful her co-workers were in terms of helping. But first, mm-hmm. we had to tell about the, the stroke. So, you know, we we didn't see that coming, but we were ready to, to deal with it. And we... It can happen anywhere. I mean, it's much more likely that a personal, like outside of a collective trauma situation or a therapeutic setting, it's much more likely that a trauma story will come up in a workshop, let's say, where you're together for several days or or longer. Or mm-hmm. when there is some kind of an intimacy developing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when people get to know each other and trust each other, that's 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 when a trauma story is most likely to come up again beyond collective or therapeutic settings or or in a you know let's say an intimate um professional group people who know each other well and work work together it it's not they don't commonly come up in in public shows i mean people make a judgment about when it's the right time and place you know yeah and I, I I wanted to to ask you about something that you mentioned earlier. It's it, it's probably going to be quite complicated maybe to answer this question, but uh, we can try. Uh, so you mentioned that sometimes you, as a conductor you might recognize in the audience that someone is triggered by a certain story. So maybe the teller is ready to share uh, the story, the trauma story. But um, but you might notice that the audience or one person or a few people in the audience are not um, responding well. So as a conductor, what um, what can you do basically in in this yeah. situation? 
Well, <laughs> I, yeah, I know that's a big it's question. <laughs> it, it's so hard with with playback. I mean, it's never like just uh, okay, you do this and then you do that and then you do this. Yeah, it's exactly. Never, never yeah, cut dry. We have to be, we have to be resourceful and creative and spontaneous, and we have to be informed. So first of all, we need to know that that can happen, and we need to have some ideas very accessible to us about what what to do and so exactly what we would do would depend so much on on the situation I would say I mean first of all it would be good to acknowledge it so and and of course it's very delicate because you don't want the teller to feel like she's made a mistake by offering the story so you you might need to say something like Let's just pause one moment. I see that some people are upset. Let's take a big breath. We want to we want mm -hmm. to hear the story, but we will come back to you and hear something about your what what it's like for you to hear the story afterwards. I mean, to try to um, I would try mm -hmm. to give a breathing moment and yeah. and to and to normalize it. You know, to sort mm -hmm. of say it's it's okay to be moved by the story or to or to make you know be thinking of your own story that's okay and we'll come back to that um in the in the account of the project in Afghanistan which I, I was not part of but I wrote, wrote about it he um Yalmar um Eichhorn um speaks about um he 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 did he was part of a major project um, with victims of war in Afghanistan and the performing team were also victims of war. So everyone in the room had suffered. Everyone in the room was, you could probably say everyone was, was traumatized. And there were times that he wrote about where everyone in the entire room, including the performers, were weeping. There were people fainting. You know, there were times when I, seems to me, and I, I wasn't there, that perhaps they needed to slow things down more or or mm. take, and again, I, I don't know, I wasn't there. And, and the, the, the project was extremely effective and the participants felt it was, you know, enormously helpful to them. Mm -hmm. But I think that there might have been times when perhaps a more experienced conductor would have um, not forged ahead when there was so much emotion in, in the audience. I mean, in, in mm -hmm. my experience, it's not, it, it's, it, you know, it's pretty unusual to have reaction on, on that scale. Um, I mean, I haven't seen that kind of, you know, extreme group, response in a, in a playback setting um and i haven't heard about it except um perhaps in this um uh, afghanistan setting so I, I think there is something about the the ritual of playback that does help people contain um emotions and stories you know that they sense that there is a container and that they there is a place there will be a time and place that they can be 
heard. I'm not sure. I mean, this is, I'm just speculating. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I, I'm, I'm thinking, um, <laughs> actually was just thinking about, we've done a lot of performances in schools addressing school bullying and we that's pretty i have to say i think for a kid to be bullied or to have uh, the other kids not talking to him or her um, being boycotted that's very traumatic for a kid like that's rated very high in the uh, when you have like uh, a scale of traumatic events that's uh, one of the most yeah that's that's a very hard thing to deal with for a child. It's extremely hard. And um, so over the years, I mean, not not every story that's told is a trauma story. There are many of the stories are stories of witnessing um, bullying. And typically the, the children will say they were they were upset to see it. And they mm-hmm. the, uh, the, the thrust, the focus of the work is about empowering the bystanders to take effective action to help end bullying, to help the person who was being victimized. Um, But occasionally, or more than occasionally, I mean, kids did tell stories about things that had happened to them that they were were traumatized by. Um, And I'm remembering um, two particular instances and one of them um one of them a, a little boy came to the teller's chair and and was telling a story about how he was um targeted and excluded and teased because he spoke spanish he was he was latino and mm-hmm. um he was very you know full of many tears as he was telling this and again, he's made. He's made. He has used his agency. He's used his choice to come and he offered the story. No one pressured him to tell the story. He wanted to tell the story. He wanted the other kids to hear the story. Mm. And he so he told the story, and many kids in the audience had a very emotional reaction, and it was partly an empathic reaction. They were weeping with him. You know, they they felt terrible that this happened to him. They wanted to, him to know that they understood and that they sympathized. But some of the some of the reaction was um, kids being triggered by their own experiences of being excluded or bullied. And I don't remember, this was a very unusual um, situation. We we just had to, um, it was it ended up being quite wonderful. And in part, or significantly, because the teachers and the principal who were there were incredibly supportive. They weren't, they weren't freaking out and saying, oh, my God, something terrible is happening here. We just mm. made. We just made it. We let everyone speak. We let everyone tell their story. We didn't act out all the stories, but, you know, we heard from one kid after another. We did mm. breathe, did singing, you know, and it, it ended up being, I think, a catharsis for everybody who was there. Um, mm. w- was unusual. I mean, we've done hundreds, maybe thousands of shows, and 
that's the only time that's ever happened. But I am also thinking of another time, different school, um, similar age group. And I had noticed when we came in, there was a, a child in the front row. I wasn't sure if it was a girl or a boy, but they looked very elegant, you know, un, unlike all mm-hmm. the other their t-shirts and whatever and this kid had a a scarf that was beautifully tied and you know he he or she just looked really nice Mm -hmm. and um he came to the teller's chair and it was it was clearly um well it it turns out that it was a transgender child um Mm -hmm. a girl identifying identified as as a boy and he was so vulnerable he was so tender um sweetest sweet child and Mm. he came to the chair fairly late in the show he had been thinking about it and he told this story and you could just tell this was well like one of thousands of experiences he'd had and it was the story was about one particular kid teasing him about his boots and he was wearing these beautiful boots um, so on the face of it, it didn't seem like such a terrible thing, just being teased about his boots. He wasn't hurt, you know, he wasn't physically hurt at all, but he mm-hmm. was, he was very, very sad. I mean, he was, it, 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 it was a soul, mm-hmm. soul crushing experience and he was, he was crying mm-hmm. and a few other kids in the, in the audience were, were very, very moved and one of the teachers started crying and she she ran over and she grabbed him and she took him out of the room. Um, mm. She she was afraid that this was too much for him. Um, mm. And we decided, again, this is, I don't remember this ever happening any other time. Um, so the teller's, suddenly the teller's gone. We have his story, but he's not there. And we decided mm. to enact the story anyway and so we did. We enacted it. He didn't see it. Um, but when, as soon as it was over, he came back in. And, mm-hmm. then, and then we stood, I stood with him and the teacher in front of the class. And these kids just kind of poured out their support for him. You know, how mm-hmm. much they liked him, how much they would make sure that never happened again. And he he felt wonderful it was incredible mm-hmm. um it was mm-hmm. to have told it he, i don't think the teacher needed to take him away but it ended mm-hmm. up it ended up very well so other mm-hmm. kids i would say they weren't they weren't traumatized they were just moved you know they were it it made them cry you know to hear that to hear that story i i I have to say, I have two two things after listening to that. I'm thinking now in the Zoom and the online playback era, mm-hmm. I got a couple of uh, chances to to do an enactment, and the teller wasn't there because of uh, internet connections and things oh. like that. So oh. yeah, nowadays I think it's happening often, and then you have to make a decision. Oh, now that the teller is back, uh, should we play it again or should we just carry on? But yeah. this is just one thing. But yeah. the other thing I was thinking about is um, 
about drama stories because you're now you were mentioning now the story of this boy and I'm thinking you know the content doesn't necessarily match the emotional um, right yeah because he was sharing a, a story about someone teasing him about his boots so I mean this is the kind of story many other children could could share in a playback performance and it wasn't necessarily so uh, um, traumatic or emotional or whatever right. but and, and this is something I wanted to ask you about about uh, trauma stories because um, I got a chance to run into all kinds of situations as a as a conductor with trauma stories some of them were really not coherent they were really fragmented some was were really like uh, surprising almost uh, like out of context someone would come and share a story a very hard story but It was just very surprising. I, I, I couldn't expect that to hmm. um, to happen. It wasn't really connected in any way to the theme or whatever. Yeah. So I think drama story has like some kind of um, attributes or it, they, they are different than other stories. And I wanted to ask you about that. Do you how can we recognize, okay, this is now a story that is... Uh, What is the difference, basically, between trauma, traumatic stories and uh, other stories? Okay, well, a couple of things. First of all, if, if the story is very, very fragmented, it, it could be that it's actually too soon for the person to tell it. Um, mm. You know, they, who knows why they got up to tell it, why they offered it. Um, but but I, I know if I, that happened, if I was conducting, I would be very, very careful with that because it would tell me that, um, you know, this person is perhaps not quite ready for that testimony phase and maybe it would be appropriate to do um, very, very pared down kind of enactment, maybe just a short form or something that's not going to confront them with the whole story so that's just one thing the other thing because is maybe maybe because the fact that uh, the story is told in in this kind of way means that it's not yet integrated it wasn't processed yeah. enough yeah. for the yeah. teller so it might yeah. be too soon to see something that is uh, like very yeah um strong or yeah right i mean with any any traumatized teller you have to be very careful in the enactment not to be too graphic or too strong mm -hmm. And you just yeah, suggest you suggest you hint at what happened you don't play it in a literal way but yes that that's what I would that's what I would um, that would be my hypothesis that this person hasn't processed it to a point where they're ready to tell it in a coherent way and so what we do with that needs to be very very you know just keep, have that in mind that they're at that very early stage the other the other thing I want to say is that as you said the the it's not always the content of the story that tells you it's traumatic so in the case of this boy um, it like we knew so much just from looking at him right he was the only elegantly dressed kid and in the, in itself that can be that can make other or cause other kids to be cruel, you know, with, whether or not you're transgender. Mm -hmm. um, so I knew even before he started speaking 
that he was vulnerable and was quite likely being what was a victim of, of bullying. Um, so I know that without knowing anything. I mean, nobody's told me anything about him, but I, I'm observing that. Um, and then it's his demeanor as he's as he's telling it that, you know, his head is down. His voice is very weak. He's obviously fighting tears and then he does start crying. You know, so all of those things tell me that this story is 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 about much more than some kid teasing him about his boots. I mean, that was just perhaps the most recent thing that had happened. But it's almost like um, the, 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 the here and now story that he's telling is kind of shorthand for a whole situation, which he's not talking about in, in general terms. So I, I, I would say that it's, it's more, it, I mean, someone could tell a story that you, you, you would think might be traumatic, but they're not, they're not showing you that it's traumatic. They're not, they're not, they don't mm-hmm. shaky voice. They're not, they're not crying. They're not grabbing your hand. You know, they're, they're able to tell it in a kind of calm way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's what I would, I would go by the body language and the affect, you know, the, the emotion as, as much or more than the actual details of the story. Yes. And, and I, I want to add here that sometimes in dramatic stories, Sometimes in trauma, many times in trauma, you're, you dissociate. And a lot of times when you're going to be sharing your experience, um, you'll be sharing that um, actually with a very flat effect, like you're not going to express any emotions, which is very like um, counterintuitive to what we might think about how... Right. Trauma should look like so someone can tell you about the most horrible thing mm-hmm. without showing much emotion. Right. Well, that that's a very good point, and um, I I I know I've experienced that. I'm not thinking of a good example right now, but that in that situation where the details of the story seem to point to trauma, but the person is very flat in their affect, then I would I would also make that or or or, or um hypothesize as, as you are that this is traumatic and they're and they're kind of dissociating i would not ever push them to um let their emotion you know come to come to the surface i might ask a couple of gentle questions you know how did you what was that like when that happened you know um what was it like when you know, this person said that to you or whatever. But if they don't respond, I mean, if they don't, if they maintain that, that, that dissociated manner, then I think our job is simply to accept what they're telling mm. us. And, and again, play it back without, without being too graphic, you know, being, being, being kind of toned down and gentle in how, in how we play it back. Because perhaps they're telling it because they sense that they want to take a step towards feeling it. But if we overwhelm them, if we, you know, let's say it's a story of a, a car accident or something, and they're telling it in a, a very unemotional way, 
if we make it um, too graphic and painful and, you know, you see the police car and you see the ambulance and you see the broken neck and everything, I mean, that's liable to be too much mm-hmm. for the teller. So I think everybody, that actors as well, musician as well, they need to be clued in to this possibility. Um, so, I mean, I think it's, it's a question of being being aware that this can that this can happen of course the conductor can communicate to the actors um if possible you know let's do this you might even suggest a form that isn't going to be as literal or as confrontational um as as it might be are, are there any preferred forms for drama stories is it better maybe to use more metaphor and to distance mm. the the story and as you said not to be so um graphic to yeah. try to avoid that as much as possible I, yeah it, it's quite a a sensitivity challenge particularly for the actors to find the balance between showing enough and and not showing too much Because if you don't show enough, if you don't if you don't show the bad guy or something, then the teller might not feel it. Mm-hmm. They might relate to it, you know. Um, but if you do it too much, then the person can be overwhelmed. And I'm thinking of two um, situations where I I saw that happening. One one of them I wrote about in um, oh I think I did write about it in the trauma chapter, but. A woman in prison who wrote about yes uh, yeah about her um um she's she was an AIDS uh, she had HIV she had she had full blown she had AIDS yeah yeah mm-hmm. and she her story was about how she became infected and it was a it was a terrible story it was a for sure a, a trauma story involving rape and abandonment and humiliation it was a you know terrible story um and she but she very consciously chose to tell it you know this is the time I'm going to tell the story um but she couldn't watch it she her head went down she couldn't watch it which is a pretty strong sign that it's too much and the actors were doing it in a very subtle way they were not showing anything literal at all Um, they were just using a, I, I don't remember exactly, but I know it was very far from a realistic portrayal of, of what happened. Um, but even so, she she couldn't watch. And so we stopped. And I asked her what she wanted. You know, did she want to go back to the audience? She really wanted to see her story, but not she couldn't bear it being acted out. So we did. We did a series of fluid sculptures just showing the emotion of the story, not the characters, not the events, just the emotion. And that really worked for her. So mm-hmm. when you ask what forms, um, it's not so much like there are particular forms that work or don't work. It's it's having the flexibility to to use whatever seems like the best form 
at that at that moment and in this case switching from one form to another in in general yes as as you were saying before you certainly are not going to be literal or realistic you're not going to show a beating you know um you can use metaphor um with with kids that doesn't work so well because they are so literal minded mm-hmm. um but with adults they'll they'll get it you know if you use a piece of fabric to symbolize a insulting name or something like that mm-hmm. um so certainly you can use metaphor but you just have to make it so that the story is recognizable to the teller without being overwhelming and mm-hmm. sometimes means even if the teller is in the teller's chair Sometimes that means, you know, using short forms instead of a, a long form um, story. Mm-hmm. In the chapter, you're also referring to like a bigger context. Is it um, important to bring a bigger context, like a social context, mm. when we're enacting trauma stories? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, I think I think it can be very helpful it it kind of universalizes the story i mean people i'm sure you've experienced this i mean people make a free choice to come and tell their story but even so often they then or later might feel embarrassed or feel you know why did i do that that was a mistake i exposed myself too much that kind of thing um mm-hmm. and if If you're able to either as conductor or as actors um, relate the story to a larger social context and then point that out to the teller you know that your story is is your story but it's also the story of our society and it's a gift that you told that story for, for other people it sort of takes a little bit of the very heavy individual pressure off. And and, it, and it's true you know um, that most probably most of our stories and most of our trauma stories do relate to something in our societies definitely that, yeah that is mm-hmm. wrong you know that is harmful yeah yeah and, and it can you know we're, we're so full of our you know if you have a trauma story you have You're very, very full of that trauma story, but um but and you also feel very guilty a lot of times that's right yeah, and that's uh, you're ashamed you know and, mm-hmm. and like you know this is and you can feel isolated and alone um and that's part of the the shame There's, you know no one else has ever experienced this except me, so to to have that gentle framing of um you know we fully accept the individual nature of your story um and we see the story as part of a larger picture i mean you know you find the right moment or the right way to say it but it can relieve some of that burden mm-hmm. of shame and and isolation and, and i think it's also a way to say it's not your fault You know, like there's uh, forces in society that uh, are encouraging certain behaviors or certain uh, injustice, I, I don't know how to call it, but 
so it's not your fault there is something bigger that is happening and yeah, yeah that's a, I think that's a very very key thing and that's something I think I mentioned before that Judith Herman talks about it's like saying it she she talks about it as the judicial aspect and she doesn't mean literally a court of law necessarily although that can be part of it too I mean so, somebody who gets to tell their story about rape or something in a in a court where there's the the perpetrator is on trial um that also can be very um healing experience to see justice done very often that never happens and and there's yeah. no, no chance that it will happen but in this in this she she when she says a judicial aspect she doesn't mean necessarily in a in a court of law with it with a judge she means that you say to a group and it could be a group of six people or it could be a group of a hundred you know but it's a, a group in which you've chosen to tell this um you're saying to, to them this happened I suffered terribly and the group is saying to you we hear you that was wrong what that person did to you that was wrong and mm -hmm. you know yes you, it's not your fault we welcome you you're part of us you're part of society um it it's you know deeply deeply heal, healing for someone to experience that mm -hmm. yeah and um i'm thinking now about you know the different um the 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 way you divided the trauma stories because i think this is very different when you have like a natural disaster, like people are, it's very different than sexual assault or, right. or, or any kind of abuse yeah. uh, where you lose trust in, uh, in other people. And uh, this process of regaining trust in people, it, that's very complicated. And I think uh, playback can play and, and this recognition that the teller gets from the audience and of course from the playback uh, team is so important for the healing process. Right, absolutely. And and with um, natural disasters, I mean, there isn't, in that case, it's not, there isn't a perpetrator. There's there's nature, <laughs> you know, there's, there's the, I mean, there could be people that you're mad at, like the you know the authorities or something the yeah, authorities yeah. who haven't helped enough or um you know they're in in the uh the uh tsunami in in southern india immediately there was um you know big capitalist forces came in to kind of buy up the the shoreline where the the fisher folk had used to live and work mm. and the tsunami were never able to come back there because now there are high-rise tourist hotels and so on so there are those are stories where yes there's a there's a perpetrator but so it's a it's a bit different with a natural disaster and in in those examples that i gave in in the in the book about katrina and fukushima um it's really about just speaking the losses you know articulating what people have lost and affirming their connection and, and also just just knowing that those stories 
I think there's something about knowing that those stories will be heard and remembered more widely, you know, that people who've gone through that kind of collective experience, they they want they want those of us who didn't who weren't hurt by that, we they want us to know. Mm-hmm. Um, this this was very clear when we did this, um, my company did this long project with um, groups of immigrants who who have experienced tremendous trauma, you know, crossing the border and then being um, often victimized when they're here. And this is even before the Trump era. Mm-hmm. Um, and they wanted to tell those stories. They felt, they seemed to feel impelled to tell those stories, you know, how they almost died crossing the border or how their brother did die or how they were separated from their children or, you know, lots of very, Mm. very sad and difficult stories. And they wanted, they told us explicitly from the beginning, they wanted not only to tell those stories, but they wanted people in the general population to know what happened to them. And they want, they, that's why we did this book that they wanted people to have a way to learn their stories. So that's that's perhaps a little bit where this kind of mm-hmm. the, the judicial aspect comes in. It's like, you know, we want you to know because there's so much about this that is not right and that we are suffering. And it's almost like a human, I think it's a human trait to feel like when other people share your suffering, when they know what you've suffered, it lightens your burden. You still, you still have it. You're still a displaced person, or or what whatever. Or you're still, you know, doesn't take the suffering away, but it it, in some kind of real way, it it can help to know that your suffering is shared is known by other mm. people who can yeah. direct a kind of empathy toward towards it yeah and I'm, I'm thinking that those people are they're heroes you know that they are heroes yeah. and in society like they're coming to the US for example and then they are um, um, they are treated or they are recognized or, or as the lowest um, they're still being mistreated also after they did all this journey and right yeah and yeah. it's it's um it's it's a worldwide problem you know that that people people leave their country because they have to you know I mean, in, in many, many situations, they leave because of extreme violence or extreme poverty or, you know, they leave for survival. They, they, they don't, nobody, nobody leaves their, <clears throat> their family and everything they're used to um, frivolously. You know, they, they leave because they feel like they have no choice or they, their children, they owe it to their children to do that. But, but on the other hand, on, on the other side, you know, people in the U.S. and in many other countries as well, the the native-born population have this 
feeling that they don't they don't know that they don't understand that they don't empathize with that they Mm -hmm. feel it's very easy to scapegoat immigrants you know that it's the immigrants fault that the economy is bad or that, that I lost my job or and and the people in power can exploit that sadly and and make you make people feel afraid of of immigrants and resentful and angry so it's just this constant battle I mean I'm very involved with this right now not so much to payback but just as a a volunteer in the community trying to support um immigrants in our in our in our area um who are struggling against poverty and discrimination and I have to say that I'm always in awe learning about uh, your and Jonathan's long-year commitment to social issues. Mm -hmm. This is something that always moved me because I think um, um, it could easily be ignored, you know, and we could say, okay, we're just doing playback. But it seems like you and Jonathan were from... From very early on, you were very um, devoted to that, to make playback as social as possible or as, uh, or, yeah. Yeah, and as, as we wrote in that, in that first chapter, I mean, that was our orientation. We were, we were very idealistic young people and um, had been, you know, fighting for social justice in different different ways. And when we began playback, we certainly, from the beginning, you know, the idea was that we would be doing artistic theatre in service to making the world a better place. You know, it was never it was never just theatre for for the sake of theatre. It was theatre with the belief that this could build more um justice in our in our communities but it was a long time before we really um tackled what that meant you know what what does it mean we we had to do a lot of self education and and experimentation we made certainly made mistakes we were naive um but that yeah that has been that has been part of the vision all along is to for this theater to bring forth the voices that are usually suppressed and to help people be more open and kind and responsible towards each other and and my experience is that you know many maybe most of the people who are drawn to playback have a kind of similar orientation that they're they're people who have a strong um, artistic focus and identity, but they they want to do more than art for art's sake. You know, they want to do more than theatre, and so they're drawn to playback because it's a way to use their artistic skills and their artistic inclination to serve, you know, to serve their community and to address um, unfairness or injustice in their in their world yeah um i i have i have actually i think one last question about uh, about trauma stories what can be done when a playbacker is sharing 
similar trauma as the as the teller. You you mean when someone if you're if you're an actor or a conductor and the teller is telling a story that touches your the own triggers you yeah yeah um, yeah that's a good question. Well, I think my first response to that is that as playback performers we do have some ethical responsibility to to do our own work in the sense you know our psychological work i mean to um do what we need to do to become self-aware and in um how can i put this like in in a place where where very unlikely to be overwhelmed by our own <clears throat> feelings so you know that might mean if you have um if you have trauma in your own background to you know tell your own story in in rehearsal or or work with a therapist so that it's not going to get in the way when you hear a teller's story so you know for most people that's possible for some people who might have endured you know an extreme trauma that might be very difficult to get to that that point but basically we need to we need to be able to contain our own feelings when we listen to a story and and i often and that doesn't mean ignore your own feelings <clears throat> that means like I always have the sense of, you know, recognizing when a teller's story touches my own sadness or trauma, and mm -hmm. and I put I put that reaction. I I always have a sense of like putting it gently in a little closed box, and mm -hmm. I know I will come back to it. I'm not ignoring it. <clears throat> I'll come back to it later, either with the rest of the company in a rehearsal or on my own in some way I'll honor that but I won't let it bleed into the teller's story having mm -hmm. said that having said that <clears throat> there certainly could be moments where that's just not possible I mean perhaps particularly for a someone who's relatively new to playback and hasn't been had hasn't had practice yet in in taking care of themselves in that way and Ultimately, if you need to, you can excuse yourself. You can say, you know, I'm so sorry, I, I I can't act in that story because it's too close to my own story. I mean, we have to ultimately respect ourselves as as individuals, take care of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, I think I have one last question. What do you wish for the playback community? Uh -huh. um, huh. I I think I I wish for it to continue to grow slowly. I think that playback slow growth has been a very good thing. Um, I do I wish that we can continue to keep the essential focus on listening which is very very hard um so that everything that we do is about reflecting what's important for the teller and what's important for the audience rather than 
indulging our own desire to create beautiful theatre. But you can create beautiful theatre based on deep listening, but deep listening is is hard. So I I think all I want is for us to continue that commitment to listen listen deeply, mm-hmm. which yeah. is I think the greatest gift that we can that we can give. Yeah. And I have to say that I feel that we as as a community are so fortunate to have you and Jonathan as our leaders. And especially I'm thinking nowadays where, yeah, we, we don't get to see a lot of uh, positive models of uh, leadership when it comes to at least um, world leadership. Yeah, and, and you've been so... As I said, you we've been so committed also to social issues and uh, always developing and being being so generous in general with playback because it was something that you just gave to the community mm-hmm. and uh, you keep serving the community for so many years. Yeah, this is how I feel. And this when I was reading the book, I had this. Sense this feeling of gratitude, oh. having you as leaders, and and that you're still producing those those brilliant books. I hope I hope to see more of those kind of things that uh, you'll be offering. Well, and thank you, thank you, Noah. I mean, there's a reason why we're not politicians, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'd rather. I mean, it's much easier to be, um, you know generous and loving in a in a community like playback than, than um trying to be in the realm of, of politics or something like that so um but but i just want to say too that we we receive so much i mean um we're immensely grateful as well to so many people you know who who take this work seriously and who do it well and who give to their communities and um it's we feel tremendously given to and 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 grateful for for all of you so thank you very much for this talk uh, i think it was really fascinating for me and uh, it's such an important topic i'm glad our listeners will be able to hear your your take on that and i hope people will buy the book and uh, read the articles not just about uh, trauma but there are so many good things in this book about uh, yeah as you mentioned in the beginning there's those uh, three sections and you can find the information there about uh, narrative articulation listening hour uh, yeah all, all sorts of things so i highly recommend to anyone to read this book and it's very easily read i got very carried away with the with the book and it was really hard to to think oh what i should read there's so many interesting things there and uh so varied and rich so so thank you for the book well thank you thank you very much for having me noah and um it's great that you're doing this podcast i mean it's a, a wonderful way to share discoveries Thank you for joining Joe and me. If you like this episode, please 
share it with others. And I would also love to invite you to my workshop about solo playback on May 23rd and May 30. Please contact me at noah.laibu at story-lane.com Thank you.